So we started our, our, our new year off last week with a new series called Lump, and, and it's built around this pre premise that God is the potter and, and we are the lump of clay. And, and I know this is an oversimplification of what clay is, but one way to look at it is, is, is dust and water mixed together to create this clay, what we call clay, that can then be formed into all kinds of different things. And what's interesting is, is we see in, in Scripture, we see all these different examples of us being the clay. So at creation, God is speaking all these things into existence until he makes man. When it comes time to make man, he actually stops him, gathers the dust from the ground, and, and then breathes life into what he has made uh, by his hands. We see it in Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Well, what, a, what a beautiful picture of creation. As you look at mankind compared to the rest of creation, there's something different about mankind, right? We see in Scripture that we are the image bearers of God. Again, everything else was just made, was spoken into existence, and yet uh, God uh, forms man in his very image. In the image of God, we are made. We are all also offered salvation. So in our sin, or we'll talk about this a little bit later, but in our sin and our mistakes, the ways we've gone against God's will, that separates us from God. But God has offered us salvation, forgiveness, wiping the slate clean through the blood of Jesus. So man is, is set apart from the rest of creation. We are handmade by the God of the universe. And some would say, well, no, but that was just how Adam was made. And then Eve was from his side and whatever. We, we see in Psalm 139 that we, the psalmist says that we are knit together in our mother's womb. The prophet Isaiah speaks of the same nature my relationship to God, the Father, in Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay. You are our potter, we are all the work of your hand. And so this, this concept of being handmade by the God of the universe is one that continues to blow my mind. If you've never just thought and just meditated on that, just thought about that for a minute, I, I would encourage you, in the week ahead, jot this down somewhere where you're going to see it. Uh, one little tricky way I can do it, either, either leave notes for your spouse if you want to be all sweet, or if you just want to be reminded of things, uh, write it on the mirror next time you take a shower, and then the next time you take a shower and the bathroom steams up, it'll show up again. Um, but leave yourself notes, I'm not sure how we got onto that, but leave yourself notes uh, that, that, that just remind you to be thinking on this concept that we were handmade by the, by the God of this universe, but by the God who made all that we see, made us, formed us by hand. And even as we continue to live and grow, that we are his handiwork. There's another Jewish prophet by the name of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 18, God sends the prophet Jeremiah to the potter's house. and says, just, just go watch. Go, go see what he's doing. And, and he sees as, as the potter is using his hands to form the clay into the various vessels that he wants it to make. Uh, in this particular example, he then sees what happens when all of a sudden the vessel is spoiled and there's a mistake. And um, the context of this is actually God's sovereign response uh, to the people of God living in disobedience and how God is going to deal with his people. And we see that when this vessel is spoiled, it kind of represents the clay's resistance, uh, represents our, our, you know, our, at this point, Judah's uh, disobedience to what God would have them do. And, you know, as we think about what that looks like in our lives, sometimes that can lead us to a place of shame. When we're looking at how do we interact with the hands of God, how do we interact with God in our life, sometimes we, we see the ways that we've tried to take the reins ourselves, and it maybe shame is some of the things that you struggle with in light of that. And if that's where you're at, I want to invite you back next week. We're going to dig into that topic uh, uh, further 
And then the following week, um, we're going to look at the hope and the fact that, again, in this image in, in Jeremiah 18, the potter doesn't look at this, this, the spoiled vessel and just toss it aside and grab fresh, grab new, but instead forms that vessel back down to a starting point and, and makes it anew. And that it's remade. And what a beautiful picture for how God works in our lives. Even when things happen in our lives, we, we try to take the reins, we try to take control, and all of a sudden we mess it up and our life is a, is a mess and we're broken. And how God can take that and form it back and then remake us into a vessel and use us for his will. Are, are you familiar with, with how pottery is made? Uh, if you're able to catch service, uh, be a little early. We had, we had a video playing uh, in the background that would kind of show what that process looked like a little bit. It's a very hands-on craft. And I was thinking about that, and after I wrote that in my notes, I'm like, well, yeah, but I mean, isn't all craft, you know, hands-on? Is it all but, like you're using your hands? And I'm like, yeah, well, you're doing that. And so I started thinking about painting. I started thinking about sculpting or, or building things and all, all these different kinds of crafts you could have. And, and what stood out to me is... Again, I'm sure there's other examples we could bring out here, but pottery is one of those ones where not only is it hands-on, but your hands are the primary tools. Think about anything else you would do when you pick up a tool to paint with a, you paint with a paintbrush or you, you build with a hammer and saw or you, you create, you know, using other tools. If you in pottery, from beginning to end until you're at the point to firing it, uh, to harden it, it's, the hands are the primary tools. Yes, there's other little things here and there, but it's... it's truly handmade. And one of the first things that the potter would do is they would take this lump of clay, it's called wedging, uh, where they kind of knead it out. And what they're trying to do is, is work all the air bubbles out. They're trying to work out any impurities. And if they feel anything in the clay, they can pull that out before they get started. And they want to get to a, a common consistency. And they're, they're, they're kneading it out. And all of a sudden, they, they center it, which is they kind of throw it down on the wheel. If you've never seen the potter's wheel, it kind of has this basin with a, a spinning wheel inside of it. And then you put water on it, kind of make it a little more malleable. They throw the clay and they try to get as, as close to center as possible. But even in that step, it's not perfectly centered. So the, the very first thing the potter does with the wheels as he fires it up and gets this thing spinning is, is he kind of firmly and yet gently puts both hands around this lump until it's willing to give way and go to the very center of the wheel. Oh, what a beautiful picture of, of walking with God in the sense where we, we maybe fight and resist sometimes, but can we come to this place where, okay, God, I'll, I'll allow you to mold me and move me to the center of, of where you desire for me to be. And the next step is uh, that the potter uses his thumbs and presses down in the middle. So it's called opening up. And, and, and whatever the vessel is going to be, this is pretty much the first step, no matter what, uh, the first step of the forming process. And they begin to kind of make some sides. And they just kind of begin to get that, that hole in the middle. And then from there, they can form it. And they can maybe, well, it's going to be a plate or a platter or, or a vase or a cup or a pitcher, whatever the vessel's going to be, they can then form it from that beginning. But every step of the way, the potter's hands are all over that lump. And so when we stop and think about how we're made, not only at birth, but also as we're being remade, as we walk this journey of life, as we pursue understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for us, and what the implications of that are, and what that calls us to, and how we live our life pursuing God, following after Jesus, trying to be like him, we see that we truly are handmade. The other aspect of, of pottery and this imagery that really stands out to me is, is the nearness, is that relationship between the potter and the clay. This is something we talked about last week. We had our guest speaker, Joel Honiger, opened up this series talking about God's 
present nearness where we jump to 2 Kings uh, chapter 5 and the story of Naaman who was a, a Syrian army commander who had leprosy. And uh, there is this, it's, it's this beautiful story because there's this Jewish slave girl who's been taken captive. So if you remember, if you were here, we, we were digging in the story of Daniel, kind of similar situation. So she's taken from her people, from her land, basically a slave here, and she hears about uh, Naaman's condition. And so she says to his wife, hey, th- there's a prophet back in my hometown where I was just taken from against my will. There's a prophet who can heal him. And so not only is her heart and mind still with her people, but she also has a heart of, hey, I can help. I, I can do something that will be a blessing to you and your family. What, what a beautiful picture there. We can see very quickly as, as we unpack that story that the slave girl was close to God despite her circumstances. She knew who her God was. She knew what he was able to do. And so when she saw a need in someone's life, regardless of, of the role that person played in her life, she said, hey, I know a guy that can help. We have a prophet who, who, who can connect with God, and, and help heal you in this situation. So uh, she passes down this info, and, and the, the, the commander surprises, surprisingly listens and says, okay, I, I'm going to go. And so he sets out uh, to go to find Elisha. Uh, if you're familiar with the prophet Elijah, uh, basically the, the prophet came after, kind of carried the torches, Elisha, uh, not Elijah. So this is Elisha, the second one that came. Um, and when he gets there, uh, Elisha has gotten word of this. He, he doesn't even come out to meet him. He says, oh, yeah, just go, 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 go wash in, in the rivers a couple times, and you'll be fine. And for a moment here, Naaman's kind of like, wait, what? You're not going to come greet me? Man, I'm, I'm, do, do, do you know who I am? Kinda, you got to imagine he's probably thinking some of those things. And also he's like, do you know the condition of your rivers? I mean, they're, they're kind of filthy compared to the rivers where I come from. But eventually those who are with him say, no, just, just listen. Listen to what he says. And, and he listens, and he goes, and he washes, and, and he's clean, and he's cured. Because he responded to God's word in his life. So even though Elisha never came out, we can still see that, that God was near to Naaman as Naaman responded to what God was leading him towards. One of the verses that Joel shared that I thought was worth repeating was Second Chronicles 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. God is looking for those whose heart is soft towards him. And so as we continue in this series of looking at ourselves and our own life as a lump of clay in the hands of the potter, in the hands of the Almighty God, one of the questions that we have to ask at some point or another, so why not ask it today, is how will we respond to God's nearness? How are we going to respond as the clay? What kind of lump am I? We can all ask that of ourselves. How am I going to uh, respond to the hands of the potter? Will I, will I be soft-hearted and malleable, or will I resist it and be hard? How am I going to respond to God's handiwork in my life? Do I resist it and try to tell him, no, I, I know how this goes. I, I can make myself into whatever vessel I want to be. Or will we willingly submit and surrender to God leading in our life? As we think on this, there's something I want to remind you of. This is something I remind us of every week because I think it's that significant. Because this is something that the world doesn't want us to remember. It's significant to hear this every week. And that's just the truth that you are loved. That you are so loved by God. And if you challenge me on this, the easiest place for us to go, or if you don't believe this and you challenge yourself on this, hey, I don't know if I believe this, the easiest place to go is to the cross. To look at the fact that God would lay down his life, 
Jesus came being both fully man and fully God and was able at any point to stop what was going on when he was brought to the cross and the torture and abuse that he endured up until that point, the pain that he endured on the cross, he could have gotten himself down or, or stopped at any point. He was still sovereign. He was still God. And yet he allowed all that to happen. His body to be broken, his blood to be shed, his life to be given up. And he was in the grave. And on the third day in the grave, he overcame death. And when we see what God has done for us through Jesus at the cross, we can know and believe that we are loved. Because we've been redeemed. We've been bought back from the, the wages of sin. See, we deserve separation from God because of the path that we've walked. We've been bought back from that by the blood of Jesus. That's redemption. So we've been redeemed. God loves you. Redemption is offered to us. And he loves us also in the fact that we see that he doesn't want us to just remain in who we are, but he wants to see us remade, refined, to become who he made us to be. And I love this picture of the gospel. You think about it. Jesus comes into our life, Okay. So this is one of the things that we talk about often here at Meadowland is if you are not a Christ follower, you do not need to get your life cleaned up in order to come to God. I would actually encourage you not to because the more we try to do that apart from God, the more we screw things up. The more mistakes we make, the more, the more uh, we walk away from God. If you're here pursuing God, if you're, if you're curious about who Jesus is, Please continue to investigate that. I encourage you to surrender your life to him and trust in him for the, for the forgiveness of your sin. And then look to him to say, okay, how do I go about living life? What does life look like? But to see it through the lens of your creator. Because the more we try to do it on our own, the more just we make mistakes and whatnot. And so uh, we see that we are loved at the story of redemption, but also that God calls us to be something that we're not yet. And yet we are. I love this paradox. We're referred to as being saints in Scripture. So God would look at us and he would see uh, those who've been, when we trust in Jesus, that we're forgiven. And so he sees the, the, the righteousness of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus. But also we're still going through life. We're still making mistakes. There's still things that we need to repent of. And we, we need to seek God's forgiveness. But we've already received it in the same regard. And so there's this, 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 this refining process. This is what we call this discipleship, becoming more like Jesus, that we're made like Jesus in Jesus. But as we go through life, we're also being made to live like he lived and to be like him. So yes, we're loved. And part of that fact of being loved is that God is calling us to be more and more like him. One of the ways we say this here at Meadowland is that, that life is a journey. We also said growing things change. We acknowledge that there's a process to this. I'm going to take a quick tangent on this. This, this is something that um, I think as a church, both Little C, us here in this room, and, and Capital C in our nation are, are going to have to face this truth more and more in the direction our world is going. Are, are we willing to walk with people when they walk through these doors, when, when, they, when they come to be a part of what the church is doing? Are, are we willing to walk with them when their life is a mess? And remember that we're in those shoes too. And remember that we've been there too before we knew Jesus. Or do we push people away and say, your life is too much of a mess. Get it cleaned up first, and then I'll tell you about Jesus. Hearing those out loud, it seems so simple. Of course, no, no, just come on in, come on in. and We, we, we love you, we accept you. Uh, you know, let, let's tell you about Jesus. But you begin to think through practically what that looks like. And there can be some challenging questions that come up. When people who, who are, are living lives engulfed in sin and then trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, 
if that's your story, if you've trusted in Jesus, you know it's not an overnight change. Yes, there's an overnight change in that you're instantly called a saint. You're instantly seen as, as forgiven and righteous. But there's a journey of that transformation taking place in your life. And others have been patient with you and others have walked with you and allowed you that time and space to learn more about who God is and, and what his righteousness calls us to. As others join us, as others uh, join us in, in pursuing who God is, will we walk that road with them? Or will we wrongfully hold them to a higher standard, say, no, you got to get all your stuff together first, and then you can come be a part of a Christ followers. Hopefully it's the first. Hopefully we can walk in that difficult uh, place of, of saying, yeah, I realize that we, we all have issues in our life. I realize that we all have a mess in our life. And I know I'm being vague because I think if I just keep unpacking this more, we're going to have a whole other sermon mixed with this one, and we don't have time for that. But I encourage you to think on that. And that's something that we're going to have to continue to face in this world ahead is, is when we see those who don't know Jesus, how do we respond to them? And my heart and my prayer for us as a church that we respond with compassion and love and a heart to show them Jesus. And when they receive him, again, it would be a heart of patience and truth as we walk with them as they come to know who Jesus is and what that means for their life in life lived out. So as a loved lump of clay on the wheel of the Father, how do we respond? How do we want to respond? How do we want to respond? You know, I ask the question, what kind of lump are you? I think there's a piece of this. We could also say, what kind of lump do you want to be? What kind of lump do I want to be? How do I desire to respond to God? Maybe I feel like I've been resistant, but I want to be soft-hearted. What's the resistance towards having a soft heart? I mean, just think on that a minute. What causes us to be resistant towards having a soft heart towards God? While you're thinking on that, I want to ask a question here. Um, have you heard the phrase yet today, how are you doing this morning? Or some, some version of that. Hey, how are you doing this morning? What's interesting is this is a statement, it's actually a question that has become more of a greeting in our day and age, right? It's akin to saying, hey, hi, hello, how are you doing? And I've heard many people reference this and say, oh, I wonder if they really want to know how I'm doing. And sometimes, you know, you're doing fantastic, you're doing great, and it's no big deal. You know, you don't even care if they want to know or not. Like, hey, I'm doing awesome, thanks for asking. But also in those times where and there's some real challenging stuff under the surface. There's some real painful stuff that you're working through. And when you hear a question like that, maybe it makes you cringe because you wonder, do you really want to know? Maybe you've actually had someone, you've been on the asking side of that question. You've had someone catch you off guard, kind of blindside you because you kind of fell into that trap where it's almost more just a greeting. Oh, hey, how you doing? Not realizing the person that you're asking that of is, is really going through some heavy stuff and you know what? They're going to share. And they're going to answer your question truthfully. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Wasn't quite ready for that one. Have you ever been in that place? I think one of the reasons that that, that, that question has become more just a, a generic greeting is because when we answer that question, it, it puts ourselves out there, doesn't it? If you share a, a true response to that question, you're really putting yourself out there. What would be the most honest way you could answer that question today? How are you doing? Think, think, think about that in your head. What would be the most honest way you could ask that? What if I were to ask you to find a stranger in this room, someone you haven't met, and share that answer with them? How easy would that be for you? Some more than others, maybe. 
Actually, if I, if I said, turn to the person next to you, who maybe you came here with this morning, uh, and tell them, how are you doing? And really, no, get, get to the heart. Not just the, oh, I'm okay today, or, oh, I'll manage. No, but get to the heart of it. Man, if there's something tearing you up inside, if there's something you're really struggling with, if there's something that, that you feel like in some aspects you're just holding on with a string, you know, would you be willing to share that with a stranger? Would you be willing to share that with someone who actually knows you? Someone said that's even more difficult. And the, the, the reason this is difficult is the same reason oftentimes we have resistance to having a soft heart towards God. It's this word vulnerability. Because if we answer that question honestly, we're now being vulnerable with other people. If we have a soft heart towards God, we're now being vulnerable with God. We're, we're, we're creating opportunity for being wounded, for being hurt. To be vulnerable is to be susceptible to being hurt or wounded by another. See, to be vulnerable requires submission and surrender of control in some aspect or another. Uh, think of the humble turtle with a soft underbelly but his hard shell on top. If you were to flip that turtle over and, and put him on top of his shell, he is now, whether by his choice or not, uh, submitting to those around him. He's at their mercy. He has no control over what happens. He's now vulnerable to all that's around him. But see, we have vulnerability issues because we have control issues. A lot of that comes down to the issue of control. Now, honestly, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we probably don't need to unpack this one all that much to be able to be on the same page of saying, yep, yep, we got control issues. I, I don't know if, if this was your upbringing, um, but back in the days when it was still called a clicker because the TV actually clicked when you turned it or when you pushed the different buttons, you know, we had epic battles in our family over who got control of the family clicker. Because whoever had the clicker had control of the TV. Do you ever have those moments where like, you and your siblings are like, fighting over it and the one just had enough, so you just go stand in front of the TV and you put your hand in front of the sensor? You ever done that? Okay, got a few, got a few. We fight for that control. Well, fine, I can't control what I'm going to watch. I'm going to control what you watch, and it's going to be nothing. You know, or you're stuck on like the, some weird nature channel or something, which are kind of cool a lot of times anyway, whatever. Um, we move in our life from climate-controlled place to climate-controlled place. We go from climate-controlled house to climate-controlled car, out of our climate-controlled garage, which then goes to our climate-controlled work, uh, to our semi-climate-controlled church. Um, <laughs> we're a hardy bunch, it's okay. Um, we have these control issues. We, we always try to leave ourselves and out. You ever see people that do this? Hey, do you want to do such, such, such and such and such and such? Well, you know, whatever the event is or whatever, the, whatever you're inviting someone in. Hey, do you want to do that? Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably come. We always, always got to leave that little something. Oh, he said he, oh, he said he'd probably come. Yeah, of course. I, I would love to think about considering the option of that being a possibility in the future c considerations. We, we try to leave ourselves this, this little opening because we don't, you know, what, if we don't commit 100%, we still have some control. You ever have someone you know, that's sharing just some needs in their life and then you respond with, yeah, you know, let me know if you ever need anything. Um, well, yeah, I just kind of shared all the things I, I need help with right now and oh, no, just, just let me know what you need. Okay, have a good night. Because we, we, we want to control when we serve, when we do different things and we, we challenge it's a challenge for us to, to really be vulnerable to others. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you open up a James chapter 4. We're going to take a moment here real quick. James chapter 4. And in this verse specifically, uh, James is writing against worldliness, okay? So, so he's writing to, to those who are Christ followers. Uh, basically he's saying you, you can't pursue both the things of this world and the things of God at the same time because uh, they, they take you in different directions. 
If you chase after the temptations of this world, they're going to take you away from God. If you chase after God, they're going to protect you from the temptations of this world. And he gets to this point here in James 4, 7, where he says this. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There is so much in this verse we could unpack, but simply for the sake of this morning, what I want you to look at is look specifically at how we respond to God. What is our interaction with God? One is to submit to him, and the other is to draw near to him. In submission, we talked about this, uh, uh, I think it was probably a month or so ago, two months ago, how it's a surrendering control while still pressing on. So many times we want to be this picture of, okay, God's in full control, we'll just let him do everything, and we want to take a step back. But no, we, we see submission to God is really this picture of you still have your hands on the wheel, and you still have your foot on the pedal, and you're still going forward, but God's the one telling you where to go. And you're, you're actively submitting to where he wants you to go. But you're actively involved in that. So James calls us to, to submit to him and then to draw near. In one aspect, this is a picture of healthy posturing to God. A healthy posturing to God. Draw near to God. If you have a toddler, you can relate to this story. And if you don't, I, I think it's, it's clear enough. You get the, the drift. You probably witnessed this at some point or another in a parking lot. And, and probably uh, you just want to go over and just pray, put hands on the parent, just pray over them because uh, it can be a challenging thing. Uh, if you tell your kid, hey, go get in the car, but they don't want to go, in some situations you could have a, a defiantly obedient child who will go get in the car, but then when you go to buckle that toddler into the car seat, they go stiff as a board. If you ever tried to buckle a board into a car seat, it doesn't work. So one that can speak and fight and swing back at you really doesn't work. Um, but sometimes that's how we posture ourselves towards God. Okay, you said go there, so I'm going to go there. I'm not going to be happy about it. I'm not going to do really what you want me to do there. I'm going to, you know, maybe another example is, is where you, you're willing, hey, where do you want to go? I don't know, where do you want to go? You find a side on where you want to go. And you don't really want to go there, so you pout about it the whole time. Is that really, uh, maybe you can say you submitted to where they want to go, but you're not being a willing participant in that. You're still posturing yourself at arm's length. And so there's a piece of this uh, where we need to submit to God, but also draw near to him. Say, yeah, yeah, I, I'm in step with him. Wherever he goes, I'm going to go. I'm drawing near to the Father. And what a promise that James gives us. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I feel like he's almost saying, stop fighting it, stop resisting, and God will do amazing things in you. Imagine that process of centering the clay. If we're saying, no, I want to be over here. I want to be off center. And the hands of the Father are, are just trying to bring us back to center. Father says, okay, I'll go back to center. And we, we can stop the fighting. And we can move forward. If you've ever felt far from God, this may not be in all cases, but in many cases, I think it's because we're not drawing near to him. It's as if we've turned our back and said, God, where are you? Uh, uh, why aren't you near? You feel so far away. All we need to simply do is, is that posturing towards God where we draw near to him and say, oh, you've been right there. I've just been the one turning away. That's not all cases, but in some cases, if you, if you feel near to God, I encourage you to examine this aspect. Maybe there's a way you need to draw near to God. So sometimes our, our lack of vulnerability, our lack of a soft heart has to do with our control issues. I think the other side of that same coin is to be vulnerable requires us to expose our weaknesses. Again, think of the turtle. Where is the turtle most weak? It's his underbelly. 
And if you got him on his back, look at that, that's fully exposed. He's fully vulnerable. Uh, we think of family and friends and those kind of closest relationships. It's a great picture of vulnerability. It's our family and friends that know us best, right? I mean, think about a marriage relationship. I mean, that's one of the, the, the amazing things is this two becoming one, uh, and even the physical act of that. I mean, it, it's you're fully bearing yourself before the other in all your strengths and in all your weaknesses. And you can push back and say, Steve, you can always hide things from people. Yeah, I'm sure if you really want to, you could walk that road. But if we're being genuine with one another, it's those closest to us who are the most vulnerable with. Because they, they know our weaknesses. They know where we're not strong. The closer they are to us, the more they know about us, the more they can potentially wound or cause pain because they know where we're weak. And sometimes uh, this is because, you know, and this is why it's sometimes harder for people to let others in is sometimes it's whether intentional or accidental, it's just others' carelessness or others' sin, others' mistakes that, that can cause pain and havoc in our lives that expose our weaknesses or, or, or you know, lean in on our weaknesses and cause greater pain. But sometimes it's the wounds of a friend that, that we need. It's those difficult things that we need to hear from a loved one who we can trust. See, sometimes pain accompanies this healing process. When you have this initial event that causes uh, an injury, that, that's usually not the end of the pain. That's just the beginning or maybe the worst intensity of it. There's a lot of times the pain that will follow. Um, I, for a long time, I, I could say that hey, I've never broken a bone in my body. I made it just about almost through high school with never breaking a bone in my body. And then in a few short years, I broke the same collarbone twice. And um, if you've never broke the collarbone, it's an interesting bone to break. Uh, it's kind of like a finger that you can't really set it. You just kind of try not to use it. And so they put you in this kind of backwards brace shoulder thing that just kind of pulls your shoulders back. And, and the moment you forget about it, you're reminded by it because of the pain of the broken collarbone. And um, it's, it's one of those things where as we go through that healing process, yes, there's still pain there sometimes. And so, yeah, sometimes being vulnerable with others means that they can see those weaknesses and they can speak truth into our life that can cause pain, but it's the pain that leads to healing. Or a pain that reminds us, no, you got to keep this still in this position while those bones heal. So to be vulnerable requires us to expose our weaknesses. And as we do that, as we let people in, there's usually some aspect of pain, good or bad. And we don't like that. We, we fight against that. We struggle with vulnerability because we struggle with our weaknesses. Again, let, let, let's, be, let's be honest here with each other. I think that one of the things I love about Meadowland is we're willing to be, to be kind of raw and, and honest with each other. We all have weaknesses. We are all a mess in one way or another. But see, as, as, a, as a society, we don't tell stories of weakness well. We don't. We don't tell the stories of weakness well. But the stories that we want to tell are either the success stories in the world's eyes, or we want to tell the stories of, uh, if it is a story of weakness, it's how someone on their own pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and did something amazing, just had some success. Again, those are fine to tell those stories, but we leave out this whole picture of how do we overcome the midst of our weakness? And how, how do we do that trusting in God? And we, even in the church we do that, we tend to only look at the stories that look successful on the outside. If we're looking for advice, we, we look to those who seem to have it all together. Again, I'm not saying that, that, that there's no wisdom in any of this, but we leave out a whole mess of people who are walking with God and have some great wisdom to share from their stories. See, at Meadowland, we're all broken and we're all in need of a Savior. None of us fully have it together. And this is a story you see in Scripture from 
the first man, Adam, all the way up to Abraham, the patriarch of the people of God. We see stories of people going against the word of God, even as they were pursuing him. From Abraham all the way up to David, the, the, the most popular and, and uh, well-loved king in Judaism. And we see just crazy stories of, of, of just falling into sin. We even fast forward to the disciples. Even in the midst of Jesus in their presence, and they're too busy posturing and arguing about who's going to get the best seat in, in, in heaven. It's like your parents are taking you on an amazing trip, and, and they just want you to come together as a family and go on this amazing trip, and you and your siblings are just bickering about who gets shotgun. That's what dad's like, your mom gets it. End it, you know? <laughs> if you got your Bibles open so you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this will bring us how we're going to wrap up here. That 1 Corinthians 1, Paul's speaking to other believers here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 26, it'll be on the screen as well. Or if you want to go digital, I'll give you a minute to get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So Paul's speaking to other believers, and he wants them to kind of realize this truth that, that we, we've all messed up in some way or another. We're all, we all have weaknesses. Verse 26 is where we're going to begin. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And this ragtag group. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What Paul is saying is, is if I'm going to boast on something, you're really, really all we can boast about is how God has worked in and through our lives. Because in some way or another, we're all weak. What's awesome that, that, that Paul's the one saying this is, is if you look in the context of the world that he lived in, there's all kinds of accolades and, and titles that Paul could have hit on that he had. He actually does later. And he says, hey, if I'm going to boast, here's what I could boast on. I, I could talk about how, you know, when I was a Pharisee, I, I was on top of all the Pharisees. When I was, uh, before I knew Jesus, I, mean, I, I was the Jew amongst the Jews. And I, I was, you know, persecuting those who spoke out against God and all these different things. And I, I was like the top dog you wanted to be. But when I realized that, that that's all nothing, the greatness of, of pursuing God. I have too many weaknesses. If I'm going to boast of anything, I'm not going to boast of all those titles and accolades. I'm going to boast of the work of God in my life. He shares this in 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. The saying, is, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Paul's calling himself out as one of the greatest sinners. Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, who, who shares God's word with us here, is saying that I am one of the worst sinners. What's, interestingly, what's interesting about this is that he writes this later in his ministry. And so he's been walking with God. He's been growing as a follower of Christ. He, he, he knows more at this point than when he began. It comes to this point of saying, of who I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So you see, in this, the more we grow, the more we come to know about ourselves, the more we see our faults and weaknesses. 
the more we realize our need for Jesus. So kind of summing all this up as, as we talk about how we engage this issue of vulnerability, I would invite you to practice the act of vulnerability with wisdom with others. So I'm not necessarily inviting you to go up to some random person and, and tell them your deepest, darkest secret and tell them how you're weak. <laughs> hey, I'm Steve. Can we talk? How are you doing today? Um, no, really. Uh, but find someone that you trust. Find someone who's shown themselves to be faithful. Say, can I just be vulnerable with you? Here's something I'm struggling with right now. Here's a truth about God that I'm not sure if I believe. Here's where I question. Here's where I doubt. Here's where I struggle. Here's where my life is a mess right now. I'm just barely holding on. And maybe that's not your story. Maybe you're, you're, you're in a great place. Steve, how do I practice this art of, of vulnerability? Share those stories. Hey, you know what? Here's where I am today. I'm, I'm just I'm jamming with God, and we're just rocking it, and, and, and I'm trusting in him. But you know what? That wasn't always the case. And here's some of the journeys that God's brought me through. And you know what? I still am weak, and, and here's where I really trust in God. And, and maybe you can help be praying for me that I can continue in that strength in him. So wherever you are today, there's a piece of our story that we can share with others that we have to be a little vulnerable to truly share. So practice vulnerability with others. And with regards to God, I encourage you to do the same thing with this one caveat. Remember this, he already knows. He already knows. It, it blows my mind how often I, I, I try to be um, resistant to sharing certain things with God. Like, oh, I don't know if I can say it to God. He already knows not only what, I'm, what I want to say, but he knows that I'm struggling with saying it. Just let us practice this art of being vulnerable with others we can trust and be vulnerable with God. I'll leave you with two steps towards a soft heart. If you're saying, hey, Steve, you know what? I'm the kind of lump that's hard right now, and, and I'd like to be the kind of lump that's soft-hearted towards God. What do I do? First one is this. Start with a surrender and receive the grace of Jesus. Now, you may have already taken this step, and we're going to get there if that's, if that's you. But for those who have not trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the first step to being vulnerable before God is this first moment of surrender where you say, I am a sinner, I've made mistakes according to your word and what you've called me to, and that separates me from you, but I receive the grace that's found in Jesus. I, I, I receive the forgiveness that's found in Jesus. I believe that he is God, and that he died on the cross for my sin, and he rose from the grave defeating death, and that when I trust in him, my sin is washed from me, and I am seen as righteous in your eyes, God. If you haven't taken that step, I invite you to take that step as this act of vulnerability to God. Acknowledging your position before him. Yes, I'm weak. Yes, I'm broken. Yes, I'm a sinner. And your solution is Jesus. And by your grace, you've given me that gift that all I have to do is simply receive. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to pay for it. All I have to do is receive it. Let that be your first step. If you've already taken that step and you say, Steve, I still struggle with having a hard heart sometimes. What's my next step? Continue from where you started. Go back to that moment where you first surrendered your heart to Jesus, where you first trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and stand in the power of God's grace. So I, I shared from the Apostle Paul how he could have boasted in all these different titles and accolades. But said, no, I, I, I'm weak but God works in the midst of my weakness. So if I'm going to boast on anything, I'm going to boast about God. He takes us to another passage here in 2 Corinthians verse 12. 
And basically what Paul's doing, he's talking about what he calls a thorn in his flesh. Uh, he never identifies exactly what it is. Uh, scholars have tried to read between the lines, and some say it's a, it's a physical ailment with his sight. Others say it's this or that. There's a few different ideas out there. We don't know for sure. Uh, but basically he's saying that there's something that's just been like a thorn in my side, a weakness that I have that I can't get over. And three times I've prayed in the, the sense of completion. Like I, I, I've prayed about this. I've surrendered it to you, God, and it's still there. It's still there. Something we're going to talk about next week a little bit is this question of, can I trust an all-powerful God who doesn't use his power the way I think he should? Can we trust an all-powerful God who doesn't use his power the way I think he should? I think that's sometimes why we try to take the reins of, of our lives and away from God and try to do it on our own. It's because we struggle with that trust in God and the direction he's taking us. And that comes to a place of, of shame, though, as well. We see how that all plays out. But Paul's saying, hey, three times I've prayed that you'd remove this thorn from my side. And we hear in verse 9 a reply from God. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast. This is Paul speaking now again. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. So the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God knows that we're weak. He knows where your weaknesses are. Let's practice the art of being vulnerable with each other and being vulnerable with God. And as we do that, that keeps our heart in a soft and malleable place. There was a story I wasn't sure if I was going to share, um, but, you know, again, just in this heart of, of being vulnerable, I, I do want to share. Um, when I started in, in the ministry, uh, I started in youth ministry. And I always thought I was going to be a lifetime youth pastor. I'd seen too many youth pastors that were just kind of buying their time until they're old enough to do uh, a lead pastor, associate pastor. And it just, it just didn't sit well with me. It's like, well, no, if you really care about the students, then minister to the students. And it was just kind of this, this like I said, this placeholder. And um, that's, that's my own issue. That's not theirs. Um, but I, I felt God called me into specifically junior high ministry. I saw them as the underdog. You know, they're, they're being asked to grow up faster than they should, and, and they're not being equipped with the tools to make those adult decisions because they're still kids. And so I, I always try to marry that where I can give them a chance to be a kid, but also equip them to make these decisions. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. Um, still got that passion for, for youth ministry. But just the journey God led me in, uh, led me to a place of being an associate pastor and, and a lead pastor, and I absolutely love it. And, and this, this is really where, where I feel God, God has led me and my family. And um, there's parts of my story pretty much my whole story, um, my one, one of my previous bosses, one of my previous pastors said, Steve, we kind of threw you to the wolves there, didn't we? And what he meant by that was we, we, we put you in a position that maybe you weren't fully ready to handle yet. Um, in, in a lot of ways, I felt like that's a lot of my ministry opportunities that I've, I've taken and stepped to. And, and, and I've, I've come into a place, I don't know if it's just getting older and more mature, but this is one of the first uh, seasons of ministry where I'm just like, I feel like I'm ministering out, out of a renewed confidence and the second that I realized that, the second I realized that, I had this heart of God help me to be humble in the midst of that because I'm still a mess and there's still so much that, that I, I need you for. But what, the reason I'm sharing that is it's not that, yes, there's some weaknesses that through God's strength we can overcome, but is there a thorn in my side? Are there things that I've asked God, take this away, take this away, don't let this be part of my story? Don't let this be how I'm wired. Here's how I'm weak. Can you remove this? Can you strengthen that? That are still there today. And so why, why do you keep using me? How can you keep using me in the midst of those weaknesses? 
I, I like to be liked. And if there's someone who doesn't like me, it's hard to, to see past that. And let me just share the gospel with you. Make sure you know that God loves you even if you don't like me. There's those kinds of shortcomings and, and, and weaknesses. But that's not my story. I'm sure you have your own story. But when we have those weaknesses that we're not sure what to do with, are we willing to be vulnerable with God? And then remember, his grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And so that what God then does use each one of us in the midst of our weakness. We don't get tempted to say, gosh, look what I did. We say, wow, look what God did through me. Look what the potter did with this lump of clay. What a joy that is to be used by God in those ways. Let's end with that. Let's pray. Father God, you are an awesome God. We thank you that you take these lumps of clay and you mold us into usable vessels for your ministry. We thank you, Father, despite our weaknesses, despite our cracks, despite our hardness of heart, that you still are patient with us like a patient potter until we finally draw near to you and submit and share our vulnerabilities with you and you form us into these amazing vessels to be used for your glory and for our good. As we continue to walk this road, Father God, I pray that you continue just to, to, to work in our hearts and our lives that we would be able to um, overcome some of the weaknesses in our lives through you, through your word and, and your teaching, through community with other believers through pursuing you and drawing near to you and the weaknesses that, that are not resolved in this season or ever, Father God, let us stand where Paul stood and, and believe and know that your grace is sufficient and that your power will still work through us, be made perfect in the midst of our weaknesses. Help us to have a soft heart towards whatever you have for us in the day, in the week, in the season ahead, Father God. Help us to be a soft lump of clay in your hands. Amen.